Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. We are just a week away from the start of the legislative session. I've spent much of the past week digging through a mountain of bills, getting our bill lists and bill trackers set up, which we will post on our website very soon. Also this week, there was a real hootenanny of a debate for the uh, position of Oklahoma City mayor, uh, although the current mayor was not a participant in that debate. The Corporation Commission voted to increase your home natural gas bills by a decent chunk every single month for the next 25 years. And Oklahoma Watch published a very insightful and I think helpful piece of investigative journalism that will help all of us, help the public monitor for conflicts of interest in the state legislature. Joining me to discuss all of this and more is my friend and co-host, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Do you know what the definition of the word hootenanny is? No, did you just Google it? <laughs> yeah, so a hootenanny is an informal gathering with folk music and sometimes dancing. Well, that and doesn't you... quite describe the uh, the debate. What's the word for uh, screaming match uh, and racist diatribes? If you ask Google to use it in a sentence, it says, quote, I realized that a lot of my songs were sing-along quality. And yeah, I can get out there and have a hootenanny vibe. We're only a trio, so we can't have a hootenanny, but I'd settle for a shindig. That's a that's quite a definition. <laughs> so uh, so that's where I'm at. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Bailey is out today. And so to fill her shoes, we had to bring in not one, but two state legislators. They are Senator Julia Kurt and Representative Cindy Munson. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. We're excited you're here, and we are going to visit more in depth with Senator Kurt and Representative Munson in just a moment. But first, Scott, let's talk about this new report from Oklahoma Watch. Have you looked at it yet? Yeah, so I was just looking at it. Uh, I was just looking at it before we get on. This is, I believe, the first time that um, these documents, these financial disclosures that the legislators file, have been made available in a like searchable way where you can go on and like really easily look and see who who has what and where. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very it's very interesting. I was just looking at uh, the first one that came up is Senator Adam Pugh uh, from Edmond. I didn't. I'm not picking on Senator Pugh. He was just literally the first one that I was looking at. Um, and so it's interesting. It it kind of goes through. It, it's the it's the statement that they that delineates everything legislators are required to disclose um, as a potential conflict of interest. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's just, I think it's funny, maybe not funny, maybe it doesn't matter, because you have to list the entities that you might have, like ownership, it's an ownership of 5% or more, um, an ownership that is valued at like 50000 or more, it looks like, um, income that's more than 20000 so like that's like the, the cutoff, but you don't say what the value is, so it's like, right. like it's more than 50000 but if it's $5 million, who knows? Right. Um, um, so I, I find that interesting. Yeah. So this whole thing is real interesting to me, right? So they have to check 
all of these boxes like i understand that you know we can't use our office for private gain blah 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 and then and then there's a, a bunch of boxes where they disclose that and it's for themselves and for their spouse or dependent right and you identify who that is so you give the name and address of the entity a description which is optional and then who it is in your family that has that relationship and sometimes it's it in, in reading through this and i stayed up way late last night reading these because i got i went down a, a rabbit hole of reading these they were interesting and it varies quite a bit i think on how much is disclosed by each person right some people fill in all kinds of information in the description box which is helpful because as a member of the voting public it helps me understand exactly what that potential or real conflict of interest is and others it's just like the name of a business and the business is like ajax llc and you're like i don't know what the hell that is like what do you do you do foundation repair do you do oil and gas like what's the what does it mean did you look at did you look at mccall's he has quite a few it's a whole page yeah there's a whole the, there's a whole extra whole extra table it was interesting him so speaker mccall and leader eccles had pretty extensive lists and then senator treat had like nothing i mean his like his wife worked for langford which we knew right but that was it and i was like huh and so i after reading it i have a few takeaways a few things i learned um and reading through all 149 of these right is that a lot of legislators own rental property sometimes it's residential sometimes it's commercial but like uh, i didn't tally it up and i wish i had it was a considerable number i don't know a fourth of them maybe um as several of them i would say 10 or more have some kind of are involved somehow in like financial investment firms right so it's maybe it's stocks or some kind of financial management and that makes sense that usually means they're self-employed and set their own schedule which makes it easier to beat the capital for four months of the year and schedule around things otherwise naturally there's a lot of livestock related businesses cow and hay businesses that makes sense um several listed their public pensions or retirement funds which i appreciated right i get it some folks are retired and they ran for office and they are drawing a retirement from some kind of like public employees retirement um and and if they're going to be voting on you know uh cost of living increases for those things that is certainly a potential conflict of interest i only saw one that I remember that disclosed ownership of oil and gas leases it was Representative Zach Taylor. He has quite a few. He had several pages of like five percent stake, you know, one third stake, and all these oil and gas leases. And it was he. I won't say he was for sure the only one, but he might have been. And it still makes me. It was still odd that it was that few, right? So then I wondered, well, then other people not, or maybe they have just smaller stakes. I don't hard to say um i saw one that referenced quote various stocks and given the conversation at the national level of whether or not you know people in congress should own individual stocks i thought that was interesting that i only noticed one of those especially given the number of people who have whose job is like some kind of investment firm um representative crosswhite haters husband is a county commissioner in canadian county i didn't realize that and then both Senator McCourtney and Senator Garvin own a minority stake in the same hospice company. I happened to read one than the other, and I was like, oh, that's the same, the same hospice company. So that's interesting. 
Did you, Andy, did you find anyone um, who offered a description um, other than like just the the name, address, and relationship? Yeah, there's a bunch. There's I only I only saw one. Josh West um, offered a description, but he's the only one I've gone through that the description of his his of his disclosures. Yeah, so that's not um, not the it's most. not required. It's not required. There, I would say a lot left it blank. I don't know. It's probably half and half. I don't know. There was quite a few, and some of them were like, "This is a storage facility that I co-own with my wife and this one other person." And some of them kind of broke it down. And so you were like, "I, I always felt like I appreciated when they disclosed more," which is often the way transparency works. So, uh, Senator Kurt disclosed that her husband is a dentist, which I think many people know. And he owns a dental practice. Um, that was good. Representative Munson had no disclosures on there. So. Um, <laughs> she she exclaims to the camera i don't have any that's nothing to disclose which is legitimate right that can be the case i um and i think given the conversation at the national level about stock it's probably been on my mind and then and then oklahoma watch ran the story um but scott it s does strike me maybe a related question right that many legislators run bills or serve on committees that address the industry in which they work in their day job. For example, you know, I mean, there's a legislator who is an insurance agent and that person might also serve on the insurance committee, right? Or uh, a physician, someone like you, right? Who could be a legislator and then serves on like the health and human services or something to deal with the healthcare authority budget, right? Or um, someone might run a bill saying that spouses of legislators can own a tag agency and then <laughs> their spouse might inherit a tag agency right so that's the other thing is that we have a very recent tangible example of a legislator who had a conflict of interest that is on his disclosure form right um but i don't i haven't gone back to look at last year to see uh but i think this recognition right uh, lots of things right people are going to be voting on bills and even if not voting because they can and this came up with with representative o'donnell right they can um, take their constitutional privilege and abstain from voting on a bill if it's a presents a conflict of interest. But that doesn't mean they weren't involved in moving the bill through the process, right? And so do you think, this is a certain opinion, but Scott, do you think that it is, can be good, that it is, I'd say on the whole, better, more good and helpful for someone who works in an industry and has experience there to be in charge of moving legislation related to that industry or do you think that runs the risk uh and there's greater risk of them influencing rules and regulations and whatever that could be in unethical ways i mean this is a really tough question and this is something we we talk about we talk about a lot and i think it's i think it's really hard because there's industries many industries that are very complicated and certainly it helps to have people with relevant expertise and experience involved in the process of making regulations and oversight governance etc so i think you can at both sides but i think if you're going to do that you have to have safeguards in place to make sure that like they're not they're 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 not in charge 
of like setting up rules that are going to directly benefit them right like i should not be able to be a doctor who owns a practice that loosens a regulation for medical practices that starts making me money like in in june as soon as session is out there needs to either be like a cooling off period or there needs to be like there there has to be some sort of safe safeguard to make sure that's the interest of the public not just the interest of the 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 legislator yeah i mean i this is such a great area in a lot of cases i mean occasionally there's real black and white ones but i think um there's a lot of bills that pertain overall to an industry and i think there is some value in the expertise that you know legislators from a wide variety of professions bring you know, I pushed hard the last couple of years for ethics training. Our As legislators, we actually have zero requirement for ethics training or continuing ed, which is shocking to me. As a new one, I was shocked because I thought, well, we legislate all these other professions and they're required continuing ed, but but we don't, we're not required to at all. So I ran a bill specifically requiring us to take ethics training and it actually got heard in a committee last year and failed dramatically. And um, there's a lot of fear of even discussing ethics. Um, ethics is generally, I would say, discussed in terms of compliance, not in terms of understanding power and influence. Um, and I feel like we need a lot more training, a lot more conversation about it, because those lines are are gray. Um, last year, I'm pretty sure that Senator Chuck Hall is the only one I saw take constitutional privilege on the floor of the Senate, and it was for a banking bill. And he was surprised no one else did. Um but he took it pretty seriously. One challenge is once you take a constitutional privilege, you pretty much have set yourself up to do that forever. So they kind of make us scared to take constitutional privilege. Um, so I feel like that should be clearer. I talked to one legislator last year on something he's an expert in. I called him specifically for his advice. And he said, I've not been involved with that at all because it's too direct a conflict with my work. And I thought, well, this is interesting because he felt like he shouldn't even be involved with the discussion or negotiations surrounding it. Whereas others feel like it's only the vote. Like we had some folks take constitutional privilege in a committee about military tax benefits going, um, being exempt. Uh, we had several military members and veterans speak on the bill and then take privilege. So they've already been influential in the decision about the bill getting heard. They've even made a plea, a plea in the committee meeting and then they take privilege. And I think it's just gray and we don't have very clear leadership from um our leadership or precedent to, to help us there. And people are afraid to call the ethics commission because they're afraid they're just going to get um, that, the, that it's going to cause more scrutiny. Right. Yeah. I was really curious what, what y'all's experience is as legislators filling this out, thinking about this on a personal level, representative Munson, do you have any, any thoughts? Yeah, I think um, to your point about um what different members have investments and their flexibility in terms of their work and income, quite frankly, it's really hard to recruit or convince or encourage people who are working jobs that are um, either not salary based or they're not flexible. Um, so they can actually run a decent campaign. Um, and I, if I had it my way, it, it would be that legislators make a living wage and we all, have to separate ourselves from our current employment or investment or however we get um, wherever our finances come from. Um, you know, when you're, when you're 
trying to get someone to run for office or you're thinking about running for office and you only make $47,000, which I know sounds like a lot, trust me, um, in terms of, you know, but, you know, these are, we're part-time legislature in the sense of we're only in for, you know, a few months of the year, but we are working nonstop. Senator Kurt and I, this interim, I think we've been at the Capitol two or three times a week because we're on additional committees. Um, and in full transparency, we get like an additional like $25 or something for those meetings, but it also takes a ton of time to prepare, you know, and, and get ready for your work. Um, and, and trust me, we go through lots of documents to prepare for questions and really get our, our minds wrapped around the issue that we're, we're dealing with. And so I wish um, there were some more conversation around that and how it relates to legislator salary. And I know people don't feel bad for politicians, whether or not they make enough money, but it certainly um, um, shapes, you know, in terms of the legislature, who's going to be running for office and what type of legislators you're going to get. You don't want independently, solely independent, wealthy folks. Um, there. And also just really quickly, the constitutional privilege um, point and to your point, Andy, about the amount of members who own property. Um, when there was the um, legislation that Representative Tom Gann was running about basically making it a little bit easier to evict somebody from your property. Um, when you looked up at the board, it was the most colorful board I have ever seen in my time serving because constitutional privilege is blue, absent is yellow. And then of course, if you're for it, it's green, if you're against it's red. And I remember looking at the board and thinking, I had no idea how many of my colleagues own property. Good on them uh, for taking constitutional privilege. Um, but anyway, but that also we can, this is for another day, but when you look at our tenant laws and landlord tenant laws and how all that <laughs> shakes out, sides more with the landlord, but we can talk about that later, but it's reflective of who's in the legislature and, and what um, financial ties they have. Yeah, it's, it's worth uh, reading about. And I, I will link in the show notes to the episode to that Oklahoma watch story. Basically what I think Trevor, uh, the Trevor Brown at Oklahoma watch did was go to the ethics commission, download all the forms, put them into a Google drive, and then make a, a easy to navigate like little page where you can link to them um, so that they're all in one place and easier to find rather than, than all of us having to do what he did. And that is go in and look up each legislator individually and sort through all the pages and find the one. So uh, really appreciate Trevor's time on that. I sent him a message and said, this is tremendous and very interesting uh, seeing it. Right. And, and I think, um, you know, I think that I think the public is increasingly aware that corruption is a thing, right? Like, I, you know, anecdotally, everyone's to Representative Munson to your point, right? People will say, ah, politicians are all corrupt. It's like, well, they're not all corrupt, but there is corruption, right? That this does happen, and it happens in big, bold ways and also little erosive ways and i think these kinds of tools right this is what it's designed for is to reduce that corruption well and all, i mean you can use the word cronyism too because yeah. i think corruption implies a level of fraud that would be um that that you know a district attorney is going to take on i think we have to also talk about cronyism where we're doing favoritism um that that benefits us yeah that's exactly right um i mean no one likes it when they see that you know Oh well, this contractor got the bid because they're the brother-in-law of this politician, right? Those that kind of stuff is just rubs people the wrong way. Not illegal, just shady, right? 
Yeah. That's, that's, uh, Scott's, I think listeners may know this, but each week on the podcast, Scott changes his display name on the, on the interface here on StreamYard. And, um, that may be one for a future, future episode, or he may be changing it right now. Let's see. Today, Scott's name is McGirt is the supreme law of the land, which is probably a good occasion, uh, Scott, to mention that the governor was dealt another blow in his quest to overturn McGirt this week. I'm shocked, shocked to find out that there is gambling going on in here. I can't, I can't believe it. I can't believe that yet again, the Supreme Court has declined to hear a direct request to overturn the decision that they handed down. Has it been two years ago now? Right? Like that was like argument was like March of 2020 because it was virtual arguments, but it was still fairly early in the, in the pandemic. Yeah. So uh, I, 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 yes, I have nothing else to say. I think it's, you know, I, I will, I think it was interesting that uh, uh, representative Tom Cole, Congressman Cole um, did put, did put out there was an article what i think it was in it was in the oklahoman um but he's quoted as essentially saying like hey so it appears like you know the governor wants this to be overturned it doesn't look like that's going to happen and he directly says like is there a time when the we should start behaving like trying to be cooperative rather than antagonistic to the tribes essentially saying you know come on like enough with this nonsense like let's move forward and figure out how we're going to work together um um in this post mcgirt world um senator or uh, i keep saying senator congressman cole i believe is a member of the chickasaw nation i believe that's right um um and it has done a lot of work uh in kind of tribal legislation in his tenure in congress and i think is regarded as somebody who has a lot of experience and expertise with with this and has not been real sympathetic to the governor's position throughout this whole deal so i thought it was interesting to see someone who is a very senior member of the republican uh republican establishment in washington and here at home say like enough already like it's not gonna happen like stop it yeah, that was uh, his statement was interesting. He was just like, "Listen, we're stronger if we work together. Quit, quit warring with the tribes, and we can win this." And that's not happening. I hate the term "elder statesman," but it was very elder statesmany. Yeah, well, he knows. Uh, Congressman Cole is a very smart man. He knows what's up—a smart man and a shrewd politician. So, all right. Also, very tall, taller than you think. Whenever I've met him, yeah, person, true story. Oh, you are an imposing story. Fellow. All right. Well, um, let's talk about the disability waiting list again. All right, listeners probably remember several episodes ago, we had some folks on to discuss the perpetually long disability waiting list. Um, and it's been a focus of some of the budget request hearings that have happened at the, at the Capitol over the last couple of weeks. And both Senator Kurt and Representative Munson have filed bills to deal with this, um, to address this. And that's why they're on the show today um, to help talk about it. We have reached out to um, Justin Brown um, and invited him or someone from his staff on to talk about it from the agency side, right, of what they're doing internally. And I think my hope is, right, that we are moving towards a solution that that involves obviously the, the state government, it involves the state legislature and, and 
how we govern around uh, these programs. And it involves the community, the people that are on the waiting list um, that receive these services as well. So um, Representative Munson, do you want to tell us a little bit about your bill and how it, uh, where it comes from and, and what you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, uh, I am the House author on both of Senator Kurt's Senate bills. Um, so I'm sure she'll talk a little bit more about that. But I also have a House bill, um, which would essentially require DHS um, to send out an initial letter telling a family or an individual that they are on the DDS waiting list. They would have to send that by certified mail. And then yearly or annually, they would get a letter from DHS just letting them know still on the list. This is your placement, any other pertinent information um, that's necessary for that individual or family. Um, also sent by certified mail. This idea came from the, um, you know, my first conversation ever learning about the DDS waiting list was my, my, in my first election when I was a baby candidate and I was out knocking doors, there was a constituent and now, now a constituent of mine who told me about the waiting list, gave me, you know, their, their family story. And, um, told me that when he had called, once they met the like, I think were they at 10 years, 10 or 11 years, they had called DHS to say, we've waited. Is it our turn yet, essentially? And the response he got from DHS was, oh, you were removed from the list. Your daughter was removed from the list. And he's like, well, did you notify me? I, I never received anything from DHS. Do you have record of that? And the answer was no. Um, and so this story has kind of come up numerous times as I've talked to families and, and um, have learned that um, that's of a, of a lot of the issues that we're trying to address. This is pretty frustrating in terms of communication because it always sort of lands on the family or that individual that they didn't do their part, but there's no way to track that there were, they were even communicated to so, or communicated with. So um, this is an attempt to improve communication and sort of hold both accountable. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll be helpful. We'll see how it, how it gets through the process. It was assigned to full a and B. <laughs> and as you all know, that's a, a pretty big committee and there's a lot of work um, because there is a fiscal impact, we're um, estimating maybe between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars to the agency. So um, we'll, I'll have that. I'll have more information on that later. But um, I, I hope that DHS will um, embrace the idea. And if there are changes that we need to make, um, definitely open to hearing what those might be. But this is an attempt to improve communication between the agency and those who need services. I think that's really important. Um, and since it continues to come up, um, I think it's a solution worth, worth uh, trying. So I'll say first, thank you for saying fiscal impact instead of physical impact. I really um, appreciate that. Um, that just helps. What? So I, I, I haven't read your bill yet. I will. Um, it is on my list. What exactly does it, in terms of the letters yes like it just like it requires the agency to send information to those um on the waiting list or who are waiting for services the the letter or information the mail has to be sent by certified mail okay okay yeah. just so keeps them in the loop right that's so where they're the not floating around wondering where they're at and that's where the fiscal impact right. comes Correct. from right yes okay that seems completely reasonable 
surely they can find fifteen thousand dollars in a ten billion dollar budget. There's there's a full six zeros past what it would cost for this. So that's my thought. And quite frankly, like I said, it helps both. So they have a track record, and then it's the responsibility of that family or individual to to make sure. I mean, when we get certified mail, we either we get a nice envelope with green certified mail or we have to go to the post office and pick the letter up. Um, and so I think it's helpful and, and something that should be an easy solution. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I think uh, information helps, right? The more information is always helpful, uh, particularly to folks who are out there wondering, waiting to find out what's up, even just a status update, right? If you're in line at the, you know, tag agency or the, wherever, waiting to be served. You kind of want to know where you are in line. Has the line moved? Am I still in line? Do you know who I am? Right. Please don't forget about me. Yeah. Senator Kurt, you want to tell us about your bills? Yeah. Um, I mean, I really appreciate Representative Munson's take because I think it's very simple and it just is so, um, I mean, I don't feel like it needs to be done in legislation, but I think when you look at the commitment and the trust level right now for families who've waited so long, having something in statute actually, you know, helps, helps them and helps the agency because, you know, we know that leadership changes um, between gubernatorial administrations, if not more frequently, and the systems that are needed, we need to get them in place. And so that my bills are actually in the same vein um, in talking with Representative Munson and kind of the, the interactions we've had with families who are confused and waiting, um, information from the agency about the assessments they're doing about folks who are waiting on the waiting list, um, confusion about the past, you know, what happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there's a lot of, of um, baggage there. Um, and I think that we have to find ways to bridge and build trust. Um, and we definitely want the agency to be able to serve all these folks, um, but they need information in the meantime. So I think, you know, the big thing with my bills um, that Cindy's, help, Cindy's helping me with is one would would require ongoing information about who's being served now. Um, that's the kind of information you could request through an open records request. <clears throat> Probably would be really messy. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest challenges with transparency is making it meaningful. Any way that um, someone from the outside could understand the information or know on an ongoing basis. There's been family groups that have done this on a regular basis. You know, there's been an advocate who's done it for years. She was on your podcast, Wanda Felty has gotten information from DHS and put it in a readable format so it could be compared month to month and year to year. And without the ability to compare, you don't really know what's happening if people are aging in the system. What's happening with the folks that are waiting? We have no idea. So that's the other piece is that we ran a bill specifically. Um, they've contracted, the agency has contracted with an outside entity, a private entity to assess everyone on the waiting list and to create intake. So part of that contract was actually they're taking over the intake process for DHS. Um, and so we're supposed to have lots of information at our fingertips in a brand new fancy online source that can create dashboards. And we want that to be public. We just wanna to guarantee to folks that that will be public in an aggregated manner. So not individual you know, client information, but an aggregated understanding of what are people needing? What services are being used? Who's, what age? If someone passes away on the waiver or goes into an institution, um, where is that money going? And those are all questions that have been very hard to answer in a consistent way. And it's not anything about this specific administration. This is regardless of administration over decades and decades and decades. This has been a challenge. 
Um, so we feel like creating something very specific, the bill outlines the specific data that needs to be released. Of course, the agency could release more on a consistent basis. But I feel like it creates a yardstick also for the advocates um, who might feel like they're being dismissed to know, no, this is going to come out. And then on the, on the flip side, the agency can say, hey, we're giving you what you need in order to understand what we're doing. And so I feel like it creates a bridge that's that's needed right now. Um, and especially as they're looking, the agency really is looking to, to eliminate the wait list is what they talk about. And of course, we want to make sure that means that everyone on the list is getting served who is eligible. Um, and then I think the other thing is, if we could get through that, that's been the big dumpster fire we haven't actually dealt with, that, that our waivers don't serve um, the needs now. Um, we, they do not include autism solely as an eligibility criteria. And we now have a huge influx of individuals who need services for, for autism. They have to have intellectual disability to qualify now. We actually don't have a waiver for individuals who um, suffer a traumatic brain injury or the like. Um, we don't have waivers set up for that. So because of this waiting list kind of causing this ongoing challenge, we, we haven't really dealt with who people are and what they need now. Um, so I feel like more information on a consistent basis in meaningful ways that legislators and the public can see would be a big step forward. Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, managing this is a lot of work for a lot of people and, and state employees are honestly, I think, in my opinion, doing the best they can, right? They're doing what they can do with the limited resources that they're given. And now they're supposed to go substitute teach as well, right? So they, it's a, uh, it's a lot of work for them and, and really hats off to our public servants for doing that. Um, years ago, I uh, was the director of a, a medical program for a, a clinic. I guess it was a wraparound services clinic for people with HIV. I think a lot of our listeners know that. And when I started there, uh, we had also habitually or perpetually been underfunded, right? We we're federally funded and um, funding for HIV is not what it used to be. And so we had a waiting list for people to get in for new patient appointments. Now, this is not just unique to HIV and AIDS. A lot of specialties have long waiting lists. And when I first got there, they would say, oh, we've got a waiting list for new, new patient appointments. And I said, well, let me see the list. And you know, you could kind of see the staff like, uh, it's not actually a list. I was like, well, how do you know? And there was like a way in the scheduling system they could find out who was supposed to be next. And basically they just, you know, they, they could find those people and, and bump them in. And I was like, I think we need a list because... I, I, it would help me as an administrator. It would help all of our staff to kind of, and the doctors, right, to know exactly how long is this list. And if if someone cancels today and we have an opening today, who can we call? Let's start calling the first 10 people, right? And whoever can get here first gets in and we can try to f reduce this list some. And then annually, we started going through it, checking in to see if any of those folks had moved or got services elsewhere or whatever. Uh, and it was just... It wasn't even that long of a list, right? It was like just a, you know, at times 20 or 50 people um, that had to wait, you know, however many months. Uh, and we were able to, to address it. Funding increased. We, you know, made some changes to how we scheduled things. But it was one of those, one of those like tangible memories of like, I think we need like this list in a file cabinet somewhere that we can actually reference and and do something to keep these people in the loop because if that's you, like we want to know if their health is getting worse, what's going on so that we can make sure that they get triaged appropriately. You know, we've seen um, 
I mean, that's been the thing is like a lot of the people who get on the waiting list, they're told to do it because everyone says it's going to take forever. So they might have a three-year-old and they get on the waiting list and they may not be communicated with for years and years. And um, they have significant things that they're managing as a family. I've seen their care maps before. They're dealing with school issues, IEP issues. If their uh, loved one has medical frailties, they're dealing with all kinds of different physicians, psychiatrists, etc. And it's a burden. Um, when I look at the type of paperwork, um, the qualifications folks have to meet to get um, disability uh, designation, um, families are dealing with a lot. So we do need to make communication easier on them. You know, I think expecting them to know what's going on and oh, which message am I getting from, you know, this agency or that agency? And if I replied, um, I think we have to give them the benefit of the doubt as much as we can. Um, and that's, that's tough. It takes a lot of time, um, but we've been there and we haven't been helping folks. And that's been a priority of this process that they're going through with the assessment. They're supposed to be giving people some of the services they can access now, but it's just making sure it's, it's something people can use because a parent having to call another 10 phone numbers, it's too much when folks are in um, challenging environments and just trying to get their kid where they need to be. Yeah. Have you guys, either of you, <clears throat> have you gotten any, if you can say, <laughs> have you gotten any pushback from the agency on this? Like, has this been, how has this been received by the folks who will be on the, the implementation end? Well, for my, the, the bills, when I talked to them about it, it really was about, we'll, we'll see if it's something we're able to do. They're really worried about whether their technology advancements have come far enough to make that straightforward. They don't want to have somebody dedicated to, you know, putting information out all day long on one program, which I understand. So they, they, you know, we're very much in communication about it. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Representative Munson? Yeah, I think naturally there's some wariness and, you know, questions and um, partly because, you know, yeah, to, to your point, they have to implement it. Um, it has to work within their systems. And so, um, you know, when Senator Kurt and I uh, filed these bills and had these ideas, we're, we're doing it to, we want to be collaborative. We're not doing it to attack the agency. It's, it's really to find a way to get to a solution. Um, you know, with the information that we've been given and all the work we've done around this, um, we don't want to just keep talking about it. We don't want to just keep repeating the number of Oklahomans who are waiting for services. That's not helping anybody. Um, and quite frankly, you have many of these families who are who are calling us and asking us, what's the progress? What's being done? You keep talking about it. You say you care about my family and I. So what are you actually doing to address the issue? Um, and so um, I can I can understand, you know, agencies, like we said, our state employees are doing so much. At the end of the day, it's not the top level administrators or executives who are going to have to work through this. It's those, uh, you know, frontline, front facing, um, you know, they're the ones who provide the services. They're going to have to put this in their workflow. And so um, I'm certainly cognizant of that. I, I don't want to speak for Senator Kurt, but I know I'm assuming she is as well. And so um, we're happy to find ways to make it work, but it is incumbent upon us to, to, to hold the agency accountable for more transparency and some better um, practices when it comes to communication and working through this issue that's been a problem for, well, over a decade now. Um, yeah. 
Can I add that, um, you know, one of the reasons we went this route was after the Legislative Office of a Fiscal Transparency report last summer. So Loft put out a report and the Department of Human Services very much um, disputed the findings of that report. And so one of our things is, well, OK, well, then you put the numbers out. We'd, we'd be glad to see your numbers on an ongoing basis. And and so I think if if the if the Department of Human Services doesn't think what Loft found was accurate, we need them to to consistently help us um, know know what they see. Um, you know, Loft showed discrepancies between what the healthcare authority had on record and what the feds had on record. And I think those are things that lead to distrust. And I don't I'm not trying to blame the agency. I'm just saying, how can we make this better together and make sure that we're helping people um, get the services they need? And spend the money well, you know. It's this is this is a rhetorical question. I mean, unless we want to get into it, <laughs> um, because you could have a whole episode or a whole series of episodes about this. But you know, issues like issues like the waiting list, issues like you know what what we do here in terms of you know our our carceral system, healthcare. Th- this is one of those issues that makes me think like, what do they do other places? Right. Like, and I don't even just mean like, I don't even mean just like other states who might have a different system that serves, serves people better. But like, like, what does it look like to go to another place and kind of like completely reimagine how you provide these services? And like, if we had, if, and I don't want to say if we had leadership to do that, because I think we do have some like you guys, um, they're, just in the mi- they're just in the minority. Like, what would it look like to completely reimagine how we do this with like a model from, I don't know, like Sweden or something. Right. Or like, like, is there, is there, a, is there a massive investment that you could make in terms of, you know, both technological and human infrastructure that would, allow these surfaces to be delivered really well and in a timely manner and i think that there i think that there is um i think that probably exists um and it doesn't necessarily have to you know fall under the the ever terrifying creep of marxism um, but like do you, i mean do you see what i'm saying like it just makes me wonder like like we're kind of you, you all as legislators are doing everything you can do to try and help the system that we have function better. But sometimes the part of me that's not an elected person, which is all of me, is like, what would it look like to like just completely transform how we do this? Well, you know, I think we just have to be mindful that these are gargantuan scale. And I can't even imagine in states that have significantly bigger population, but the scale is pretty, pretty enormous. And I'll, I'll just say, I mean, this ties to me to some of the other issues we're having challenges in because of the pandemic. It's become aware, people are become aware that, oh, wait a second, our economy relies on caregiving, um, caregiving of loved ones, caregiving of children, caregiving of elders. Our families that have loved ones with intellectual and developmental disabilities, they were stuck at home. This, and some of them still are um, because they didn't have options uh, if their loved ones medically fragile. Um, people shut down, caregivers were not available, aids weren't available. And so, you know, you look at the, how that ties to our overall view where we just, you know, in modern economics, you don't, caregiving economy is not part of the conversation and it has to be realistically moving forward. Yeah, no, it, it, I think both those points are, are correct. 
I do wish there was some kind of like giant scoreboard where we could just line up, you know, the other 49 models for how states do things. Some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. And then we could just kind of compare them all um, to one another and be like, hey, look, here's some best practices. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into it. Not everything is even possible under a given state's laws, but surely there's, but, a, you know, there's a model out there that's better. Yeah, that's that's what Loft did, frankly. And, you know, I don't always agree with the policy recommendations that come from the Loft, but they compare state to state. Um, it's very hard to know the history of some of the things. And I'll say that I don't know if the Loft can always say it like it is. I mean, they made it very clear in that report that in other states, either the development dis disability services are independent or they're a part of the healthcare authority type entity, the Medicaid agency. They were they were not going to recommend, oh, you need to move this. Um, but I think they made it real clear that in other states it's done differently. Those are politically fraught decisions. Um, and it's hard to assess whether it's the right move. Um, it does. It is affected by the amount of change that would be necessary, I guess I'll say. Yeah, there's no no doubt. It's just one of those that, you know, from the outside looking in, sometimes you want to be like, you know, I had a I had a, a professor in uh, med school, fantastic professor actually, um, a cl clinical teacher, <laughs> and she her her saying was always, "So if I was the benevolent dictator of the world, um, this is what I would do." I I think about that a lot. <laughs> like, what would, if I could what, if I could snap my fingers and try to do it do something differently, how would I work? But I I think. Uh, the the very tough work of politics that you both do is i think mostly very tied to incremental 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 change and making making the system better one step at a time so thank you for thank you for doing that yeah is there before we go here in just a minute um obviously you all are working on other bills not just the disability waiting list. Uh, is there anything else you want to highlight for our listeners of, of passion projects you have going on this year, bills you're really excited about? Sure. Um, my priority legislation, of course, outside of the bill we just talked about, um, is an occupational licensing bill that um, I've, I've worked closely at the time. He was Representative Taylor, so interesting that you brought him up, but now he's a senator. Um, but he and I, opposite parties, live in different worlds, but we are, we are pretty much on the same page when it comes to criminal justice reform, when it comes to, in regards to occupational licensing, we um, worked together on a large piece of legislation a couple of years ago, addressing most of the licenses um, in Oklahoma, but there are quite a few that are not under the occupation, occupational licensure licensing statute or title, excuse me. And so I'm um, going to hopefully address that this session, I actually thought that it had passed and was signed into law. And I told a group of people that because um, I'm on the Occupational Licensing Advisory Commission, but I forgot that it got stuck in the Senate when COVID started. So um, anyway, but so that's what I'm, I'm one of my priority bills um, um, to address 
workforce issues, of course, but the continual effort to um, improve the lives of those who've been formerly incarcerated. Um, and then another bill that uh, I hope gets some good attention, um, it's a wrongful conviction bill. So currently in Oklahoma, if you are wrongfully convicted, um, first of all, all of that wrongful conviction is listed under our Tort Liability Claims Act. So you can only get a maximum of up to $175,000 if you're wrongfully convicted, and that's it. Um, Texas and Kansas do it way better than we do. So I'm trying to um, uh, get our, I don't know if you want to call them benefits, but. I did not know. That. Yeah. That's a, that is part yeah. of that law. That is horrendous. Yes, I know. I know. And I I am embarrassed to say I did not know either. I have a um I have a close friend, Rory sister who whose father was wrongfully convicted and brought this to my attention. So I started doing some more digging in Texas and Kansas. Um they provide I think they I'm I set the amount at $50,000 for every year you're incarcerated and then going forward. Um but they also provide healthcare, education, um tuition, um, scholarships for, um, the individual who's incarcerated or a dependent. So I have, a, I have some of that language in the bill as well, because once you've been incarcerated, whether wrongful or not, it's real hard to get a job housing. Um, but especially for somebody who was wrongfully convicted by the state, you know, they, we owe them something. And so, um, I'm trying to correct that and, uh, hopefully just with the, public talking a little bit more about the death penalty, death row, incarceration, and what, you know, what we do in Oklahoma. I hope this is part of the conversation that people will get on board on, on board with as well. Well, I'll just say, um, I've, I've got a couple of different bills related to transparency and, and ethics and elections that I'm going to continue to push for whether or not they get heard. I think it's important that we continue to push, um, systems for integrity and systems for transparency. Um, but I think the big thing for me this year is the budget. And I'm you know, very concerned about the folks beginning the year talking about flat budgets when um, our state was already underfunding so many important health and human services and other functions of government. Um, and we have such a huge opportunity with American Rescue Plan money coming in. Um, I know we don't want to start spending like crazy and have to cut next year, but I think we have to be realistic about how spending on things like one of my major priorities, which is mental health and substance use disorder, impacts families and impacts well-being on an ongoing basis. And so I, you know, I talked about it this week in the Oklahoma Policy Institute's budget summit, but basically looking at the opportunity costs of not taking action and what what that costs, you know, we've we've tried to calculate that with the waiting list and de developmental disability services, because what we found is that many people, when their loved one reaches 18 and doesn't have services yet, they stop working. Um, they become a one, one earning household. Um, and how, you know, these things impact the economy. Um, so it's not just about human suffering. It's also about well-being. So I, I really want us to push on the budget and trying to make our budget bolder um, and make sure that we're not just hoarding money away or, you know, definitely not turning away more money in terms of tax cuts and um, increasing tax credits when we're already a structurally in sound budget. So um, I don't want folks to be scared of the money. I think we should demand um, that we serve folks better. Senator, I want to go on record saying that I agree with everything you just said, but also that I'm already on record saying that there'll be a tax cut this year. I hope I'm wrong. 
hope I'm wrong. But I, <laughs> um, I do. I, I want to ask about the budget, and I assume the answer to this is no. But for those of us that spend an inordinate amount of time trying to follow what's happening at 23rd of Lincoln uh, during the session, um, and I would imagine for you all as legislators as well, particularly who are in the minority, it is like such an unending and like boundless like pot of frustration that the budget is inevitably unveiled three days before like signy die and no one reads it except like the a and b chair um is there ever any hope of a more transparent budget process even if it leads to a budget that in my opinion is is objectively bad for underfunding services and cutting taxes is there ever any hope that we'll get a process that we can that that at least has more input more time and maybe reaches its pinnacle before you know like the last day of session well, so I'll just say, you know, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. And I think those running the current process don't quite understand the kind of process we're describing. Um, and I don't blame them for that. I think they've been they've inherited a system that has been dysfunctional for a long time. I think we just have to keep explaining what that means. Um, and I think that the public has to demand that. I mean, with the current system, most senators and reps don't have to answer for their vote on the budget. Everything's put into one big bill. If you um, vote a certain way, you can blame it on some portion of that. It's too complex for anyone to really critique. And I think we're all off the hook. And frankly, even as someone who cares a lot about the budget and has made an effort to understand it, sometimes I even get disheartened. Is it worth even knowing all this if uh, my input's not considered? So I think that, you know, sometimes I hear people say, well, the public doesn't participate in the budget hearings or whatever. Well, we have to help people understand what's going on and, and they have to feel like they have an opportunity for meaningful input. So I think it's possible, but not tomorrow. And I think it's going to take a lot of expectation raising on the part of voters to their elected officials on what they expect. I can give you a little tiny itty bitty glimmer of hope. I think leaders Virgin and Floyd may have filed some legislation. I know they there was... They did a press conference at some point last session about this, about um, the process being a little more transparent. I I think they have. I haven't read all the bills yet. I will do some of that research uh, this weekend. But um, I think they both have put out efforts to to make the process more transparent. Um, and OK Policy did a great job last year highlighting and showing sort of what other states do, because I think it's also really easy to get stuck in this idea that this is what we've always done. Let's keep doing it this way. When you're in the majority, you can do it this way versus what are some changes we can make that really helps all of us. Um, and I will I will give um, credit to Chairman Wallace, who has made efforts to communicate with the Democratic caucus. Obviously, we don't always land on the in the same place um, and we have a lot of questions and certainly wish those conversations would happen a little bit earlier and a little more proactively versus just here's what it is. What are your questions and thoughts? Um, but that's the most communication in the last couple of years since he's been chairman um, that we've had with the budget chair since I've been elected. And we certainly appreciate that. Um, but of course, there are still steps we can take to make it more transparent and not just about this minority majority fight infighting at the Capitol that most people don't really pay attention to. But to Senator Kurt's point that the public is more aware of what's going on. This is the most important thing we work on. It is the only thing we have to 
technically work on. Um, we don't have to do all this other policy stuff. Um, we do have to pass a balanced balance budget every year. So um, getting the public more engaged. I've only had one constituent who has asked me detailed questions about the budget and why I voted against it. And it was pretty impressive, the things that she knew, but that's one out of like 37,000 people. So well, this yeah. year it'll be two. I'm going to, I will ask you detailed questions about the budget this year instead of just blowharding about it here on the podcast. <laughs> Fine. No. There you go. Well, Senator Hicks. She'll be your senator. No, I'm kidding. You can that call works. me. It's fine. Well, um, I you know today I have been thinking about. I, I guess a, a phrase has been in my head for no particular reason, but that that government isn't something that happens to us, or it shouldn't be. Right? Politics isn't just something that happens to us. We, the people, the voters of this great state, have a voice, and far too many of us don't believe that it means anything right and so we i think we don't use it to the full extent that we can and so the fact representative that you remember this one person who asked you detailed questions right tells you that like literally just doing a little bit more than what you're doing right now um can can make a big difference can stick in the minds of your elected officials even if that's someone that you agree with even if it's someone that you vehemently disagree with it, you can still have a respectful important you know well researched well thought out and like human conversation with them i'm also struck by the humanity of the bills that you the the two of you are running and the way that you spoke about them certainly there is a economic aspect to all of this stuff as well but um, I, I appreciate that you don't lose the humanity of of this for a political win or for the sake of you know job creation or something right like this most of what government does most of what government is really good at is making really positive changes in the lives of people who live here um and as as scott and i like to say from our favorite television show the west wing right government should be a force for good and it really could so all right i just want to make sure you know andy that a uh, government's never created a job i tell that to all the state employees who work the, there. no i just i mean like it's a fact we hear it every year government's never created a job not one not ever only private job creators do that only tax only tax cuts and job creators create jobs so. the uh okay policy had a really good slide this week and and i will also link to some of their stuff because so there was their annual budget summit um this yesterday i guess on thursday and it was excellent as always the opening session from um Emma Morris was excellent. All of her slides were excellent. Very, most of them were very simple to understand. There's a few graphs that are just, it's complicated content and that's the way it goes. But there was one that showed the, the impact um, for us versus other states and of tax cuts, of um, cutting services and all of this. And it, they broke out like economic growth on its own and economic growth if you break out oil and gas, right? So like on the whole, Oklahoma's economy has grown, but if you take out oil and gas, we haven't compared to our, our geographic neighbors. It was just like one sector, which we all know has an outsized influence on everything in our state. And and we have for decades lived and died by the boom and bust cycle of that sector. And we need to recognize that there is an enormous amount of uh, of the state economy that is not directly tied to oil and gas, right? 
I, this week, news about the Cherokee Nation and the film industry, right? Like all kinds of stuff that's happening. So, okay, well, we'll get into more. Uh, we'll get into more important budget discussions with Emma Morris. Actually, um, I think next Friday she's going to be on the podcast to talk about some of those those excellent slides that she made and give us an overview of what the budget situation is right now. Uh, and then, as a reminder, on the 7th, that is a Monday, that is the first day of the legislative session, it will open with a joint session of the House and Senate and Governor Stitt delivering his annual State of the State address. We should make a bingo card, Scott. I'm going to have to ask my doctor for some migraine medicine. <laughs> we, uh, I haven't decided if I'm going to attend. I may not be able to attend this year, but I'll be watching online and take notes. That's right. Uh, undoubtedly, the the middle of the main go card will say Oklahoma is open for business. That's the that's the nexus of the, all the, the question. The question is whether whether we can get through the first line without Oklahoma being open for business, or whether it will come at the very end of like the first intro, like the mm, first yeah. paragraph. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be it. Like it's going to be like three sentences, and the first paragraph will be like, and it's clear at the end of my first administration that Oklahoma is open for business there it is well uh anyway thank you all both so much for, <laughs> right uh thank you all so much for for being here and to andy's point in all seriousness thank you so much for um the hard work that you do politicians have uh as you alluded to representative munson politicians i think have a they have a, a bad rap in in the pop culture but um public service is really hard um, it's really hard. It's it's really time consuming. The financial rewards are not are not there, particularly at the state level. Um, and I think especially in a state like Oklahoma, when you're a member of the minority, it can be really frustrating. But you all do incredible work for your constituents and Oklahoma is better for it. So thank you both very much for your time and expertise. Thanks for having us. That encouragement goes a long way, by the way. It's going to to like next week so make sure you call or text <laughs> all right well that brings us to the end of the episode uh listeners thank you for being here as well your involvement makes a, a ton of difference as well as we say every week decisions are made by those who show up and i'll add this week right that government isn't something that happens to you it is about you it is part of you we are all part of this day together have a good week rest up over this lovely weather uh weekend we're gonna have and prepare for it to be cold again on Tuesday. Have a good week.